Bindbear's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vibe Air Podcast from the office with the heater in the background. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is New York Steam Heat. Man, Zach, do you not miss, you probably don't miss New York Steam Heat, do you? Oh, <laughs> uh, there's so many things I miss about New York, but that's not one of them. It's the Excuse worst. Excuse the hiss, like, listeners. We're literally in the studio, and there's a fucking heater in the studio, <laughs> and it just is hissing away, and there's nothing you can do about it till this stupid radiator is done. <laughs> so we really apologize. But uh, Adam, what yeah, was it like I mean, to be somewhere where you definitely did not need a heater? Didn't need a heater. Oh, it was the best. Welcome back, oh, Adam. Thank you we so. We missed you. We did. I know you did. I'm not sure Zach did. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> You guys have fun with, it, with me when I was gone? Yes, we had Mr. Infante on the pod. Yeah. That was nice to have his take on. It's always nice to have his take, really. Yeah, he's funny. Um, Good yes, guy, smart. Yes, we missed you. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, what What have you guys been drinking? Zach, I mean, dry January's over for you. I know, over. I'm back, baby. So what have you been up to? <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> uh, I think the two things the two things I've had of note since, uh, J- since January ended, I had... I broke the seal with a uh, bottle of Bilcart Simon uh, Brut Rosé, which is one of my favorite rosé champagnes. Caitlin was very happy to to have some uh, company drinking. Oh, um, was, uh, was Caitlin dry as well? No. no. Okay. She, she was glad to have some company uh, in, in the drinking world. Um, and then I also um, just had a, from a brewery that I've talked about a few times on here, Fremont Brewing, I had their cold IPA, which they call Baxter. They do a series named after like people's pets that work there but uh keep your eyes peeled there may be more about cold ipas coming in the future but it's an interesting newish kind of category of ipa that's got like it's kind of vaguely connected to some previous efforts to do like uh you know hopped lagers and or these sort of ipls um but has some different stuff uh some different methodology behind it um and they're interesting they they i think one of the things that comes out that that has made them appealing is that they got one thing about the the real popularity of the New England IPA or the hazy IPA, which is like the smoothness of it. And there are a lot of things in the production process, and to some extent, the 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 base materials that are designed around providing both sort of a smoother texture and also a lot of hoppiness. And so um, that was kind of an interesting thing for me to try because I've I've heard a little bit about the category, but haven't really tried many things in it. So that's uh, I'm exploring it a little bit. How about you, Joanna? Yeah, I want to. I definitely want to try that too. It sounds really interesting to me. Um, for me, nothing too uh, crazy interesting. I actually just finished moving out of our apartment oh, over this past weekend, so that was thank you. Quite quite the headache. Um, so, but before we moved out, had an opportunity to get some some beers from uh, our local Torch and Crown Brewery, which ah. I mentioned before. But um, just had some. You know, we got some lagers from there, an American lager and a dark lager. Um, Really easy drink. Tasted really, really good after moving, (laughs) schlepping a bunch of boxes. So (laughs) so, uh, that's kind of the most interesting thing I've been drinking. uh, What are you going to miss? Like, Is there a bar Mm, or a place that you like to drink in the neighborhood you're going to miss the most? Uh, Yes, there's our our local dive called Puffy's Tavern. Puffy's? I love love Puffy's Tavern. It's been there for a while in Tribeca, (laughs) and we go there, went there all the time and uh we'll, we'll definitely miss puffies and a bunch of other places in the neighborhood but very sad to leave um but yes so that, that. that was my weekend what moving, moving gr- is horrible everyone Ugh, don't, is the don't worst. move don't ever moving move. is the worst um, <laughs> what about well, you adam tell us all about your uh escapades oh my escapades in the <laughs> in the dominican republic yeah uh so i drank i drank a lot of presidente beer mm-hmm. and of course, uh, of course. a lot of brugal rum mm-hmm. 
and I was sort of like, so it was, it was a family vacation. So Mm -hmm. it was like my parents, um, my uncle, some of his kids. It wasn't like the whole family. So it wasn't truly a family vacation, but it was relatives. Of course, of course. Um, Naomi was there. Obviously she was invited. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they all obviously know about Vine. So like, Adam, you make drinks. Mm-hmm. So I made daiquiris one night. Um, and then another night I made jungle birds. Nice. And I also, there was like um, a, a little beach bar that we went to one night and I did have a pina colada. Because I had to. It's required. Oh, yeah. I, I had to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are really delicious. <laughs> yes, they are. They are really Very delicious. delicious. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're quite tasty. So mm-hmm. so that was what uh, what I got into. And then I came back to New York. I missed the snowstorm, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Yeah. I came back to New York, and now it's just cold and rainy and great. Yeah. Yep. You know? Um. <laughs> God, it's just the best. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I'd never – I don't know if, if either of you have done – I've never done before the – late January, February beach vacation. Mm-hmm. Never in life. Me neither. And I, it's a lot of families, right? Oh, and, but also a lot of people are really into it, right? Like we have a few Vine Pair staffers that are out doing that vacation. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of understand why people do it now. Of course. <laughs> you know, you're just like, <laughs> oh yeah, for be five days and it's like hot and you're like jumping in the pool and going swimming. And mm-hmm. then you come back and you're like, okay, like now, now it feels like I only really have a month and a half mm-hmm. or so left of winter. Right. You know, and it is definitely something that I, I see the appeal of now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never done an all-inclusive before. I don't think I'm going to do one anytime soon. Um, but we were just like in our house, oh, nice. um, which was which was nice. Uh, although obviously more work. You're like cooking and cleaning and all that stuff. But uh, but yeah, it was it was fun. It was a lot of mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You had pina coladas. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so that was it. So, so on today's episode, we talk about uh, a piece of news that came out a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, it's something that we've, we've wanted to talk about for a while, but this gives us our news hook, which is Silicon Valley Bank put out a report and, you know, sort of the state of the wine issue. They do this every year. Um, and one of the really big <laughs> topics in that report is that wine uh, is continuing to lose market share to spirits specifically, mm-hmm. right? Beer, some of it really spirits and that, you know, mm-hmm. this adoption that everyone saw, thought was coming of millennials to wine really doesn't seem to be happening. It's, it's really much more, um, you know, millennials to spirits. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people trying to ask why that's happened. I have a very clear reasons I think that it's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd like to, before we, you know, before I give my thoughts on it, I'm sort of curious, like, you know, is this, is this report that either of you expected to hear? Well, I'm, I'm happy to share. I think that, I think this makes sense to mm-hmm. me. I think that given, I don't know, I think personally, um, as a person in the, that gener the generation in question, I yeah. guess, um, I think wine is kind of hard and kind of in, Fine wine specifically is kind of impenetrable. And I think also there's just a lot, a lot of drinks on the market as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that as a result, there's just more choice. And so I think there are fewer people who are loyal to just wine or, you know, there's just like a lot more to choose from. And so it doesn't surprise me that that wine is losing market share to millennials. I think what's more surprising is that, I guess it's going to spirits. Yeah. And that's that I'm, I'm curious to know both of your thoughts on like why that, why that's happening. Why to spirits, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, what about you, Zach? 
I think that this didn't surprise me at all. I think one one thing that's certainly been true for me as as a fellow millennial is that my interest in wine has always to some extent and I mean look, I've been a professional in a in a few different facets. So it's obviously going to be kind of a, a, a somewhat of an extreme among my age cohort just because of what I what we all do professionally and mm-hmm. um you know, I don't expect people our age, you know, the, the average person our age to have a similar level of interest, but but mine has always kind of outstriped the, the people around me to some extent. But I think one of the things that has been more noticeable to me over the last few years and as the millennial generation, and this is kind of whole report is kind of pegged around the notion that like the oldest subset of millennials are are reaching 40, right? And and the wine industry has traditionally understood that, especially fine wine, it's not expecting to get huge market share among 20 to one to 30 year olds, right? Like the mm-hmm. wine is generally more expensive. It has a you know premium connotations. It's not a I mean it can be, but it's not traditionally been like a party drink. And so it makes sense right. that wine the industry as a whole wasn't exactly like fretting about market share among millennials when we were a decade younger. But now I think there, that's where this concern is starting to to really bubble up. And I think it, it is, and I know Adam, your theory connects to a lot of what, um, you know, sort of is, is a lot about how wine has been sort of, for lack of a better word, kind of pitched to our generation. But I think that in addition to all those things, yeah. it's important to look at some of the broader um, challenges that our generation has faced, um, you know, not as much um, sort of wealth uh, in, you know, younger professional life. Um, you know, it's just harder, you know, people leave school with more college uh, debt than people had in previous generations. It's harder to buy a house. Um, people are having kids later or not at all. And all these things kind of work in either directly or indirectly against wine. I think in addition to that, there's something very true to what you were getting at, Joanna, which is it's a mix of there's just more out there for people who are interested in drinking to explore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. hard alcohol has been destigmatized in this country a lot. You know, I think part of it is when we were younger, when when other generations were the sort of prime drinking cohort, with the exception of maybe, you know, long ago with with sort of martinis and your Manhattans, your kind of 50s and 60s Mad Men era, you know, hard alcohol was really kind of seen as, you know, if you drank a lot of liquor, you were an alcoholic, I think was sort of the message that was given yeah, yeah. out. And I don't think that is as true. I think the co- the craft cocktail renaissance. There's just like a the, cocktail culture now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All these things have really made yeah, that makes sense. drinking hard alcohol drinking liquor more acceptable as a regular thing as opposed to a you know mm. once in a while kind of celebratory thing and that also cuts against wine yeah. and i think last and of also all celebrity endorsements totally too completely which makes a lot of sense absolutely yeah, yeah. and i think last of all the, the, the last piece of this is that i don't necessarily agree i think i think the silicon valley bank report is sometimes is really really well put together it's very very informative but it's also a little bit myopic or at least a little bit limited in what it's really truly mm-hmm. looking at and it's yep. it, it's no doubt that wine in the you know high end california brands might be struggling to connect with millennials but I, I think if you look at some of the other facets of the wine industry they're doing just fine with with our generation it's just our generation as an aggregate might not be interested in you know high end full-bodied red wines from mm-hmm. Northern California. And mm. and that doesn't make, doesn't mean wine is doomed. I think sometimes it gets portrayed that way. Yeah. And it might mean right. certain industries or certain wineries, certain regions might have some trouble. 
and and might or certainly might need to think about what they're doing and whether it will continue to resonate moving forward. But but wine as a category is so diverse, and its diversity has also come to the forefront mm. over the last couple of decades. And people are exploring wine from all over the world in a way that was absolutely not true with previous generations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so look. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, I, I've had some conversations with people since this that this, you know, when we talk about this report, it really is looking at the data of the large producers. Mm-hmm. That being said, the wine industry really fucked this up. <laughs> and I'm about to like, you know, throw, spit some truth here. Hold on to your hats, people. Uh, they really fucked this up. And I spent about an hour on the phone a few days ago with Dale Stratton of the Wine Market Council. And we were sort of talking about this report. And I told him that, you know, I was preparing for the podcast and so I was running sort of my thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. off him. Um, he was at Gallo for 22 years, then Constellation for 11, now runs the Wine Market Council. And he also has seen this problem coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what happened. So up until about 2017, the wine industry was drunk on the fact that basically all you had to do, as Dale said, was wake up in the morning and you made money. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't really matter. And they were also seeing all these reports from basically everybody, that the millennials were coming, mm-hmm. right? The millennials are coming. They're going to love wine. They're going to love wine. So they really didn't do much. And unlike the other two categories they compete against, the leadership in these companies also stayed pretty antiquated. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have the, during during sort of the, the early teens and even the late aughts, you didn't have the promotion of younger people, younger generations coming in and saying, okay, well, I'm going to take over these roles, et cetera, right? You, mm-hmm. you really had still... You know, besides a few of the more forward thinking companies, a lot of, you know, just older generation people who have become very reliant on the way wine has always been marketed, which is, let's be honest, through basically in-store display, you know, placement on a shelf, and then two to three antiquated publications. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know they're our competitors, but I don't care, right? Mm -hmm. It's just true. Like, this generation doesn't read those. That's why they're reading publications like Vinepair, that's why they read Eater or mm-hmm. Food 52, you know, your old publication, Joanna, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're not reading these antiquated publications, but wine hasn't adapted. They're still talking to what they think is the most influential publications and they're not. And mm-hmm. so they're not growing. Meanwhile, spirits and craft beer specifically, and now I think beer as a whole, really was like, we're going to come and talk to millennials. We're mm-hmm. going to, you know, we're going to meet them we're going to make things accessible. We're going to create cool brands. We're going to, you know, we're going to interact with their favorite people. We're going to, you know, spend money. I mean, just to be, you know, fair, our, the majority of our advertisers at Vinepair at this point are spirits brands, mm-hmm. right? And that's not because we go out and talk to all of them. It's because they come to us. They're like, well, if everyone's reading you, then, right. you know, that's in this generation, a we need to be talking generation. to them. generation, exactly, know? yep. And yep. it's very rare that we have a, a lot of wine companies. Um, and I think that's just, you know, one sort of, anecdotal data point, but it's very, I think, true across the board of how, what they're doing. The other thing is, I think that they are, and Dale and I talked a little about this, they're very sort of misunderstood. They misunderstand, sorry, what millennials are willing to pay and why, sure. mm-hmm. right? They they think, oh, millennial cheap, mm. right? And so Dale said, you know, when you look at actually the amount of money, like what they spend on spirits, right. millennials are spending a lot of money on spirits. Mm-hmm. They're buying brands like 1942. They're buying Hennessy. They're, bu- they're buying expensive products. Mm-hmm. And it's because this generation, while, yes, Zach, I, I agree with you that, you know, there's a little bit of that, you know, 
what they're making harder by house, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They still are all about perception amongst their peers. Right. And they, when they do spend, they're going to spend. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what the wine market council said and what we've been saying at Vine Pair for years is guys, 20 fucking dollars is the average. So stop trying to sell them the cheaper shit. Mm-hmm. And here's why, because their friends fucking look it up. Mm-hmm. You can find the price of wine anywhere now. Very easily. Very yeah. easily. Wine searcher, it has been around forever. Mm-hmm. Right. And, all you have to do is go on Wine Searcher and then do you bring a bottle to my house? I go to my, man, John's fucking cheap, man. Do you want me an $8 bottle of wine? <laughs> like, what the fuck? I just made this whole dinner, an $8. I mean, they do that. Mm-hmm. People look at it in their Instagram stories. They're watching people like LeBron James, you know, post bottles, all of their peers, mm-hmm. right? And wine is still sitting here being like, oh, we need to do sort of gimmick brands for them. Mm-hmm. We need to do $10 and $12 brands for them. Like, no, the reason natural wine is popular is because it is speaking to millennials in a way that is feels accessible but still highbrow with interesting a premium mediocre right right with yep. premium looking labels mm-hmm. that aren't that don't know what your parents drank at prices they're still willing to pay right and and I just can't believe that like at these bigger companies you see these brands you're like they think this is a millennial brand like they went out and got a skateboard artist or something like <laughs> what the fuck is this mm-hmm. and the spirits companies have done a much better job of bringing in younger talent, Mm -hmm. trying to understand what the market is, promoting, you know, stealing each other. I think, you know, the the wine brands, I think they're trying to catch up are stealing talent from spirits brands Mm because that's what they need to do. They need to say, okay, like, so what's working? Let's go to LVMH and steal. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Diageo and steal. Like, that's where I think the innovation will come. The question is, is it too late? Mm -hmm. I don't think that it is, but I I think a lot of blame has to be put on the face of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they are used to a model where all it takes is scores, which millennials, I, I cannot, again, I mean, you know, Zach, you and I talk about this. How many times have we said, dude, for like at least, what, six, seven years, millennials don't give a fuck about scores. No. Why is this what they are still paying attention to? Mm-hmm. And producer profiles, they don't need to read another profile of another family in their fucking vineyards to be convinced. They need to, They instead they want to know, okay. How is it made? How are the workers treated? You know, is it sustainable? What is the, you know, what is everything that goes into? Is, the, is it lightweight glass? Maybe they're not buying California wine because they're sick of how heavy the bottles are. I mean, yeah. there's so many things that mm-hmm. the wine industry is not listening to. And then again, they're just doing the same thing they've always done. Oh, cool. Let's submit to these three publications. Let's hope we get the scores from these publications or these critics. Let's spend m- the majority of our marketing dollars there and let's see what happens. And I know that someone's going to say, again, this is sour grapes coming from Adam because he wishes they'd advertise with Vine Pair. Honestly, I don't care. We're fine. Mm-hmm. What I care about is is that I love wine mm-hmm. and I'm very upset when I see things like this because I fell in love with beverage through wine. Mm-hmm. And I found, I thought wine was this incredible thing, you know, product that allows you to, to travel the world, probably in the same way you did, Zach, right? It was just this, yeah, this intoxicating thing. And so it pisses me off that they are getting it so wrong. Mm-hmm. And they are, and I'm having to convince my friends mm-hmm. To drink it instead of the spirits they now enjoy. It's like, well, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Wine's not cool. And it's because they're not reading about wine in any of the pub- publications they read or in any of the things that they do. And wine, snap the fuck out of it and fix it. You got to. Or else, yeah, it's, it's going to be a problem. You have to wait for the next generation. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned it like wine's not cool. But then we kind of see natural wine yeah and it's it's trying to be cool and it's resonating with people yes and they're charging for it and the labels are cool and it's it's cool looking and it's cool to drink and i think that that's such a it's such an interesting thing that's developed as a result of what you're talking about and publications like ours are writing about it and you know 
the the other publications like Bon Appetit, they're all writing about it. And mm-hmm. those those wines are not submitting for ratings. No, no, not at all. Um, because they don't care. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> right? Because we'll write about them because it's cool. Right. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and I think on top of that, there's another element of you know, this shifting landscape where, you know, I think you make a really good point, Adam, that not only was there maybe a lot of laziness in the wine industry, a, a little bit of just kind of roll out of bed and make money, but also just people got really used to a a demographic and a cohort, mostly uh, baby boomers, to some extent, Gen X, that, you know, there was a plug and play formula, right? I mean, we've talked about yep. on the podcast before the sort of, you know, parkerization. And again, Robert Parker gets demonized for something that like, yeah, he played a role in, but like really, truly part of it was just the the wine buying populace wanted seemingly the same thing over and over and over again, right? They wanted the same kind of wine. Maybe they wanted it from a different place, from a new label, something they could get their hands on. But basically, they wanted everything to kind of be somewhat similar. And and I think for for whatever yeah. it's worth, I, I don't think you would say that about millennials and and even Gen Z. Like I think one thing that has struck me a lot about talking to friends of mine who are our age and, and younger who are interested in wine is like they always want to be trying something new, right? New varieties, yeah. mm-hmm. new new producers, new places, et cetera. And natural wine is a part of that for sure, but it even goes outside of natural wine in this regard. And that I think that that is on the on the one hand, um challenging, right? It's challenging for an industry. And look, wine is, even though there are some obviously extremely large wine companies, wine also has a lot of small and medium-sized producers that are not all going to be on the same page, that are going to be doing different kinds of things, and that not Mm -hmm. all of whom are going to be able to necessarily understand their um, target audience super well, especially if, as you said, Adam, they've got people in charge who are, um, you know, of an older generation. I'll give a very quick anecdote because it was just funny to me because it came literally earlier today. I got an email, uh, one of many, you know, kind of PR pitches from a winery in in Napa that was, you know, talking about their like exciting new, um, or I guess a wine company in, in Napa that's got like a new label that they're, you know, partnering with some well-known wine making consultant, blah, 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 famous vineyards. And like, all of the wines are named after like this famous consultant's like favorite classic rock songs. And I was sitting there reading this. Mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit, all these songs are 50 years old. Like, fine, but like, no one I know, like, I mean, I like classic rock fine, but like, I'm not going to buy a wine that's named after a Led Zeppelin song just because it's named after a Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. song. And like, this is obviously a microcosm of a bigger thing, but like, that that same ethos has been, and that same approach has been really kind of done to death. And, and I think it's just, it is an indication that, you're right, Adam. It's not that our generation isn't going to wouldn't spend fifty or a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine or more. Um, in many cases, yeah. it's just that the 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 way that that wine has been marketed is just it's like it, it, it's in a different language. It's not coded for for our generation. It doesn't speak in many cases. It doesn't speak to any of the things that we care about. And yes, spirits have been more nimble. But I also think the other piece of this too, and this is my last kind of my kind of little other thing here, and it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is about some of the specific financial and whatever challenges for millennials. And, and it's also that like getting into wine as a, as a serious consumer, right. Inevitably involves some amount of like, I don't know about collecting full on, like I'm buying wine forever. You know, I'm age, I'm buying wine to age for decades, but when you don't own a home, when you are renting, when you're moving frequently as, as I think our generation does more, much more so than previous generations, mm-hmm. a bottle of, a bo- you know, Joanna, when you just moved, Packing up a, a home bar 
a lot easier than packing up a wine collection. Like it's less fragile. The bottles are half empty. You don't have to worry about it. Like, yeah, it's heavy. And yeah, it's kind of a pain in the ass. But I really think that is a piece of it. Even if people aren't kind of aware of it in the moment, and even if most wine that people drink is bought and consumed that same day, wine does need, especially high-end wine does need a, a small but meaningful percentage of any generation that wants to invest in it and not as bullshit NFTs and, you know, whatever, but like as like mm-hmm. a thing that they want to buy and hold on to and and open later for some, you know, purpose or occasion. And, you know, it's just harder to convince uh, millennials that that is a, a thing that they should do. And I don't necessarily think that's wrong, but it is a challenge that wine faces that I don't think spirits or even beer faces. Well, mm-hmm. or... They need to adapt, which which means that you know if if there's if there's an opportunity, okay, so right, like it's a, Dale and I talk about this too that there's this belief right that people don't want to collect, mm-hmm. right? Look at how many millennials are building bourbon collections. Mm-hmm. Look at how many millennials are collecting tequilas. So that's you already have sort of a counterpoint to a to to the easy answer that like a wine marketer would say of like, well, no one's collecting, but what they what they're collecting, you know, Zach is. Whiskey, it's already perfect to drink because yeah. it's been aged for them. Right. So maybe wine needs to start figuring out, huh, how do we put out a 10-year-old bottle more mm-hmm. often? How do we? Maybe they have to invest in aging it for the consumer mm-hmm. so that the consumer can have those experiences but isn't worried about, man, I got to now hold this for 10 years. So I'm going to move three times in those 10 years. Right. And my life is going to continue to change. I don't want to keep schlepping this bottle with me. Mm-hmm. You know. So instead, and I think you know that's something that Rioja has always done really well for the consumer, which is why I think it's one of these like steals on the market is it, you know, a lot of those bottles come out with decent age on them when they're released to the consumer. So they get to already have a, a kind of cool experience of an older wine. But th- I think that takes adaptability. And, and I think, you know, the biggest thing I hear is there seems to be less willingness and you were saying this Zach in another way just now is like, there's less willingness in the wine industry to take risks, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's like, this is the model. So we don't want it. We don't, we don't want to rock the boat. Like, well, what happens if we move the money from these places we've always spent it at? And what happens if we take a different approach and we talk about wine differently, we change the labels or whatever. And it's like, well, maybe you win and maybe you don't, but you need to try something. Right, right. And you know, again, the, the spirits and beer markets are taking risks. Mm-hmm. They're taking risks all the time. That's why I think they keep winning. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to take risks, then there is going to ultimately be a day when you say, Oh shit, we lost, we lost, mm-hmm. you know, and that shouldn't have been because this market is so wine is low alcohol. Mm-hmm. It is a more natural product. It is, you know, and I mean low alcohol in relation to spirits, right? It is an artisanal product, mm-hmm. right? You you get to, for the most part, besides the really mass produced, which the which this this market doesn't even really want to drink wines. You know how it's made, who made it, where the grapes came from, all these things that millennials and Gen Z really care about. This should be so fucking easy, mm-hmm. but they have to change what they've already been doing and come to this generation and talk to them about those things and and then make you know design labels that are appealing to them and not just what they think you know like some of these labels i see on the like especially when i go to the grocery store and i'll see some of these labels i'm like wow this like came out of a focus group where a bunch of like our parents sat around Mm -hmm. like designing what they think we think is cool Mm mm-hmm and I'm just like, what is this? Go to a regular wine shop in New York City and look at the natural wine labels and maybe just design one like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. How do you think, like, the dining out and restaurant situation, on-premise situation has affected this as well? I mean, the biggest thing that, that Dale also said, which I think is true, and Zach, I'm curious um, what you think, and Joanna too, 
is that, you know, this is the first time in a long time that like when you're, you're headed to the drinks list. Right. And so now the millennial has the choice mm -hmm. and they see the cocktail next to the, the wines by the glass and the beers and mm -hmm. it's all on one. And so you're really fighting now and the millennial and the Gen Z drink all of them. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well now what's the price? What's the spirit in it? Do I know this? Do I know that? And wine in a lot of these are so unfamiliar. That it's like, okay, cool. Like I totally know what a Negroni is yeah. done. And they're both $16. Mm -hmm. And right. I think that's really, you know, the wine, the, the by the glass wine prices, especially in New York sometimes are, they're either as expensive as the cocktails or they're more expensive. Yep. So also if you're doing that in your head, you're like, well, then why would I not just get a Negroni? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think the pricing piece, and I think that's, that maybe has to be something that we save for another conversation because it's a big piece of, of wine's challenges in on-premise settings is just the, like, the fact that the pricing has gotten kind of totally out of whack, I think. Totally. Um, but, but, but I think that in addition, you make a really good point about that, that kind of competition, that's more front and center with with um with all the categories of beverage alcohol in on a single list and and frankly too the notion that like I, I think that there is an element where where you know a cocktail list you can look at a list of ingredients and yeah maybe it's difficult in some cases to get a sense for um what that drink will taste like if you're unfamiliar with some of the ingredients or or maybe you don't really know how they're going to be combined. But I think that the other challenge that is true in wine is is as the wine world has gotten more expansive and has, has you see things from all over the place is, you know, sometimes the wine list kind of almost reads like gibberish. And and that's even, you know, for me yeah, as someone who is um, who is a professional, we did a podcast about this a while back, Adam, um, about kind of wine list formatting and just, you know, the the sort of obscurity and, and the lack of of clarity. And and, you know, whereas in a in a cocktail in a bar, or sorry, just any restaurant where there's a bar presumably at least the person in making the drink, i.e. the bartender knows what the, was in the drink. Right. And so there's always going to be someone on, you know, at the restaurant who can explain to you what is in the drink. Hopefully <laughs> um, if not, if the server can't do it, then the bartender can. And in a lot of restaurants, especially these days where like, you know, wine focused service positions have largely been, you know, cut back or eliminated or whatever, you know, it, it may be that there's just not someone who can speak really uh, sort of meaningfully to the wine if the person who's putting together the list isn't there, doesn't work nights, doesn't work the floor, blah, blah, blah. And that is a challenge for wine. That is a that is a thing that goes beyond a little bit. It's, it's yeah. other challenges. It's just the inherent complexity of wine. The fact that, as you said, there are all these different places making wine, all these different varieties, all mm -hmm. these different producers, mm -hmm. and no one person, even a master sommelier, can keep them all straight, let alone the average consumer. And so sometimes there is a moment of like, the wine list is too complicated. I don't want to deal with it. I'll just have a cocktail or I'll just have three cocktails. Um, and mm -hmm. and that is that is a thing that is, you know, the wine industry has to has to figure out how to solve in some to some extent. But on the other hand, I think there's also just the element of like a lot of what is being you know, put forth for people to consume is not super compelling to, to the, yeah. to the people who would be buying it. And that's a bigger problem. Like if you're not making interesting wine that has, you know, that has selling points to it, then like, I'm not surprised you're not selling it. Like that's just the, the, the state of play. And I don't think wine, I mean, like you, Adam, I came to my love of beverage largely through wine and I love it and, and will always love it. But like wine is not just, you know, should not be granted a seat at the, at the big kids table just by fiat like it has to earn, continue to earn its place there it has to continue to be producing product and, and marketing in ways that are relevant to the people who will buy it and if it doesn't do that then it its market share will continue to diminish and deserves to yeah i mean do you think that um you know do we feel that there's a sense of urgency or panic in 
wine producers or, you know, <laughs> wine companies after this report? You would hope so. I mean, but I don't know. Um, I, I think there, I think there is now you're starting to hear it. Like when I was speaking with Dale, he was saying he's hearing from people that are panicking mm-hmm. that are like, Oh crap. You know, like how did we mess this up? Um, or what do we do to fix it? I think like there's a, there's a plan for almost like a got milk campaign right, for wine. Right, the slogan. We need the slogan, right? Like they're, they're thinking about that now, <laughs> I think out of California. Um, but I mean, there's also, there, there's a lot of easy wins here if the wine industry would continue to pay attention. Like I think one of the ones, right, is yes, you know, people's habits have changed. I know Josh and I have now done multiple conversations, multiple presentations, like I've been Expo, Wine to Wine in Italy, to certain companies where we've shown data that, you know, continues to prove that in the fall and through the holidays, one of the highest categories of wine that we see interest from amongst, you know, the the millennial population is rosé. Just make more rosé then, Mm -hmm. you know, and have it on hand all year long. Like, you know, stop telling millennials how they should drink wine and Mm -hmm. let them drink it how they want to drink it. Right. Mm -hmm. And... That is, I think, one of the biggest problems with the wine industry is it's like, no, 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 you have to drink it the way it's supposed to be consumed. This, you know, <laughs> how many people, do, you know, wine to to millennials is just another alcoholic beverage. Right. So let millennials drink it while watching the Seahawks play. <laughs> That's sure. for you, you know, <laughs> or sorry, you're more of a Packers fan, right? Because of. Uh, oh, no. I am not. No, you're a Seahawks fan. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, like there's less ceremony to it now. So it's just like, let let them drink it how they want. And Mm -hmm. if they want to drink rosé all year, don't tell them it is a summer beverage. Like it's just, and I think again, beer and spirits have really let their consumers create, you know, what is adaptable, et cetera, or mm-hmm. sort of adapt the product. Sorry. And then they followed them. Right. Like, Oh, cool. Like they've done this. Now we're going to then now we're going to create it as well. And I just, I think wine has not mm-hmm. wine just continues to sort of think there's so much tradition and with tradition comes baggage mm-hmm. and, you know, and then, you know, the, the larger, even, even larger elephant in the room that we keep talking about, but I'm not seeing anyone do anything about is wine has done a terrible job marketing to black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Terrible terrible and they keep saying they're gonna do better and i'm like i don't see it mm-hmm. where are those campaigns where's the support of i mean we were at you know the the festival that um wine and culture yeah Fest. wine and culture festival in atlanta that tahira habibi puts on and like I, I every big company should have been there sponsoring yeah. and there wasn't one yeah and i'm like okay and i you know i know her well she's a friend i know she reached out to a lot of them mm-hmm. so where is that like there's a lot of this talk there was a lot of very important influential people at that festival and there's a lot of festivals like that. There's a lot of organizations like that. And I know wine companies can't support all of them, but that's another huge market that is millennial mm-hmm. that you also haven't been marketing to. Like, come on, there come more sales. Like, it's just mm-hmm. business. And we've always said that spirits and beer have done a better job of that, especially especially certain beers to certain communities and certain spirits to certain communities. Right. They, just, they just have. And uh, so I think, like, this is totally fixable. Mm-hmm. This isn't doom and gloom. It's just, like, change the strategy Meet people, you know, meet these drinkers where they are, let them drink the way they want to drink and talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. For sure. Or, yeah. <laughs> or continue to, to Or continue to, to slip. <laughs> yeah. Continue to slip. Yeah. Anyways, well. Um, this was an interesting chat. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you listen to the pod and have strong opinions on this, one way or the other, please hit us up at podcast.vimepair.com. 
we'd love to know what you think about, you know, this take and sort of where, what you see either that wine is doing right or what wine could be doing right in mm-hmm. order to sort of right this ship. Um, and yeah, Joanna and Zach, I'll talk to you Friday. We're going to bring in uh, Jake Cornell and yes. talk about his new podcast, The Vine Bear, going out with Jake Cornell. <laughs> talk to you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.